Hello, greetings. We're so glad that you've joined us, and we're very glad for your interest in spiritual matters. My name is Ethan, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples on the west side of Los Angeles. Today, we are going to do some consideration from the latter half of Revelation. It is written in Revelation chapter 12, beginning in verse 10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives, even to death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And then in chapter 15, in verses 2 through 4, we read, And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Now, Revelation is a very difficult book. That's what everybody is aware of. It's very challenging to understand, and trying to make any sense of it is fraught with danger. For a lot of people, it's a lot easier to, to think about what Revelation doesn't teach than what it does teach, and to try to stay away from it. But that would be lamentable, because, yes, it is apocalyptic and highly metaphorical. Yes, there is no end of ways in which people attempt to make sense of it, uh, forcing passages to fit uh, preconceived and interpretive ideas, and often suffering greatly from the tyranny of the present, assuming everything that was written is really talking about here and now, something that people have been thinking, have thought is true since, oh, the time it was written. And yet, even despite all that, John is granted a vision which can be somewhat understood. All the way back in chapter 1, we can see something of this. In chapter 1, after John introduces himself, he sees uh, one who seems to be like the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man at the same time. But uh, we're told about it that he also saw in that, in that place uh, seven golden lampstands. And there were seven stars and other things. And we're told in verse 20 that as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So John sees stars and lampstands. That's part of the vision. But Jesus right there interprets them and says the lampstands are the churches the stars are the angels. So we can we can make sense of these things. Yes, they're images. Yes, they're metaphors. But these images and metaphors have their biblical antecedents. It's saturated with images that are drawn from the history of the people of God and the things that they have endured. And so what's going on in Revelation is that God in Christ is granting 
to John this vision of what Christians are going to endure from Rome in terms of what the people of God have experienced in the past. And yes, I said Rome. For every attempted one-to-one connection that many try to make for Jerusalem, there is equally a disconnect between the way the imagery is used in Revelation and having been used earlier in the Old Testament and even in parts of the New. Rome fits the mood, and Rome fits the system that uh, John has uh, considered. And Jerusalem just doesn't fit with the way the images are being used. Now, Revelation overall features bookends and at least two cycles. It opens in the first chapter, in the second two chapters, uh, there are the letters of the seven churches. In Revelation 4, we're given a picture of the heavenly scene. And in Revelation 20 and 20 to 22, we're told about the millennium, the immediate post-millennial events and judgment, uh, the picture of the post-resurrection life, and the conclusion. So we understand what's going on in those sections. It's what's in between and even toward the end that, that gets highly controversial. But what comes in between, in between Revelation chapter 5 through 19, seem to be two cycles of events at least. In chapters 5 through 11, we have a heavenly cycle. And those seem to be focused on the judgments that God is going to have upon the, on mankind. Uh, most of the action is in heaven. Uh, some things are seen on earth, but it's, it's seen from the perspective of heaven more than earth. And then ver- chapters 12 through 19 is the earthly cycle, which kind of flips that. There is some judgment in it, as we're going to see, but the scene is primarily what's on earth uh, in light of what's going on in heaven. And there's lots of points of contact between the two cycles. But the structure was presented is very hard to reconcile with a linear understanding that the Revelation progresses in a sequence of events that goes from point A to point B to point C to point D uh, from chapters 5 through chapters 20. So if we're going to understand what's going on here, where we have this woe that is decreed for the earth and, and things in chapter 12 and this idea of how to overcome the beast in chapter 15, which is our main theme for the day, we're going to have to understand something about this earthly cycle in chapters 12 through 19. Now really, if we really had a great opportunity, this would be a time for a multi-month Bible study that would work through the use of the imagery and considering the biblical parallels. If you're interested in a PDF of all of that information, including some articles, you can contact me for theverbalvitae.com. It's also going to be available uh, through vinebiblestudy.com, since uh, we talked about it many times with uh, college students in our college studies, and both of those studies uh, were multi-month events. And also, the notes for this sermon have greater detail as to the references of the passages. Uh, that would be the ideal way of doing it, and even less ideal, way, less ideal, but still decent way of doing it would be to be able to work through exactly where all these parallels are coming from, why uh, these images are working the way they are. Unfortunately, for the time that we have in this lesson, I'm going to be able to kind of paint a picture for you, hopefully. And in the painting of the picture, uh, pr- I'd appreciate if you'd look for the detail of the picture and see what's going on and, and reserve questions for the... Um, notes or for that other information or you can contact me directly so what's this picture that john is presenting well in chapter 12 uh, it begins by this woman who's representative of the covenant people of god and she's got the signs of israel and she's pregnant 
the red dragon is seen. He is Satan. He is endowed with power on earth, and he prepares to consume this child when the child is born. But the child is born, and take him to heaven. He is Jesus the Christ, because he has overcome the world and sin and death, and then he reigns in his ascension. The woman flees to the wilderness, and she's sustained there by God during the time where the persecuting power will have domination and dominion. The scene then cuts to heaven, where John is seeing a war between Michael and God's angels and Satan and his angels. And there's no place found for Satan and his angels, and they are cast down to earth. And then we have this first passage that we considered. The voice from heaven crying out that the kingdom of God, the authority of his Christ has come, the accuser of brothers have been cast down. Very importantly, that they have conquered him, the, the accuser, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even to death. And then the thing that's going to frame it, this idea that the heavens should rejoice because, obviously, Satan has been cast down, but the earth has woe and lamentation because the devil has come down in great wrath because his time is short. And what that voice means is then framed from the end of chapter 12 into chapter 13. Uh, Satan, that dragon, is trying to persecute the woman, uh, who is a people of God. She is given wings to fly out into the wilderness. Uh, a serpent casts the river to carry her away, but the earth swallows that river up. The dragon is angry with the woman, and so he goes away to go to war with her offspring, who are called the saints. And he does this by standing at the shore of the sea, and out comes this beast. And this beast is a collective embodiment of the Daniel's beasts in Daniel chapter 7. And so it represents the ultimate empire, which of course is the Roman power embodied in the emperor. Everyone who does not serve God and Christ worship this beast and the dragon who empowered it. It's important to keep that in mind. The dragon is empowering the beast, so Satan is propping up the beast, which we're saying is the Roman power embodied in the emperor. They all marvel at the beast, and the beast is given a mouth to blaspheme for 42 months, which is a time of the dominating pagan persecuting authority, and he is given authority to make war on and to overcome the saints. In Revelation 13, 3 through 10, we're told that another beast emerges from the earth. It looks like a lamb, but it speaks as a dragon, and it's identified later in Revelation as a false prophet. It's consistent with Roman religion, and he compels the people of the earth to worship the beast. He causes fire to come down from heaven, and he gives breath to the image of the beast, and he makes everyone who would buy or sell have a mark of the beast, which is its number or its name, and its number is 666. Uh, which is likely referring to the divine titles given to Caesars and on coins and things of that nature. And so the scene is presented here of what's going on, how Satan is warring against uh, the people of God, and it's a very dire and difficult situation. But then in chapter 14, John sees the Lamb, who is Jesus, on Mount Zion with 144,000, who is a church on earth. And they're singing the new song of the Lamb. And then three angels in turn proclaim the need to fear God because his hour of judgment has come, that Babylon has fallen, and that all those who have the mark of the beast will drink the cup of the unmixed wrath of God. And in verse 12 of chapter 14, we are told, Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. So again, the idea of the patience uh, and the endurance of the saints. 
Chapter 14 ends with two scenes of judgment. One, like a son of man, who as Jesus reaps the earth of the sickle, which is the ingathering of the saints, while an angel has a sickle that reaps the grapes and casts them into the winepress of God's wrath, and the blood that comes out fills the earth, which is the judgment of those who have not followed Jesus. In chapters 15 and 16, the seven bold judgments are prepared. John sees the angels in heaven holding those bowls full of God's wrath. And then our second passage that we read, that a sea of glass mixed with fire is seen, and those who conquered the beast in its image, and they sing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb, and they glorify God and the power that exists in God. And then the time is prepared for the wrath of God should be poured out in the seven bowls. And the seven bold judgments are, the first six, excuse me, uh, are the fullness of what had been seen in the previous judgments in the trumpets in early in Revelations chapter 8, 9, 10, 11. And these judgments are consistent with the Exodus plagues. They fall upon the beast, the false prophet, and those who serve them. But they don't repent. And we also see the gathering of armies at Haramageddon, Mount of Megiddo. Now the seventh bowl causes a great earthquake and the judgment of God's wrath upon Babylon and great hail. And then, beginning in chapter 17, uh, an angel will bring John to show him the judgment of the great whore with whom the kings had committed pornea, sexually deviant behavior, and the people who were make, made drunk on the wine of that sexually deviant behavior. So first he is given a glimpse of what this Babylon is, and then the judgment that comes upon her. And he sees a woman on a beast, and he, she is dressed in finery. She holds a cup full of abominations, and a name is written on her. Mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of whores, and abomination on the earth. And she is drunk on the blood of the saints. And the angel describes what John is seeing, that it, Babylon is Rome itself, and it's on the beast of Roman power, which is embodied in the emperor. And then, in chapter 18, judgment is declared. We don't actually see anything happen. We just see uh, the scene and then what happens afterward. That Babylon has fallen. The saints are called to come out of her. All of her plagues come upon her in one day. And then in turn, in chapter 18, the kings of the earth, the merchants, and the sailors lament over Babylon. Uh, lamenting the loss of the benefits they gained from Babylon, but they say far off. So they don't share in her trials. Very consistent with the lament over Tyre in Ezekiel 27. Yet heaven, the saints, the apostles, and the prophets are to rejoice over Babylon, for she has been judged and they have been vindicated. So after the judgment of Babylon the whore in chapter 19, the preparations are made for the marriage supper of the Lamb to his bride, which is the church. John then sees from heaven the faithful and true one on a white horse, the word of God, king of kings and lord of lords, and from whose mouth comes the two-edged sword, which would be the word, and with him the saints in white linen, uh, are all writing, and an angel invites the birds of the air to the feast of God to consume the dead flesh of those who are opposed to the Christ. And then John sees the beast, the kings of the earth, and all their gathered armies back from the Armageddon scene. And the defeat is final, and it comes simply from the one who is faithful and true, and from the sword that proceeds from his mouth. The beast and the false prophet are cast into the lake of fire. The rest meet their end from that sword. The birds fill themselves with their flesh. And this is the drama. 
presented in Revelation given to John regarding the woman, the dragon, the beasts, the saints, Babylon, and God in Christ. So what did we just go over? What did we just see? We need to remember that above all things, Revelation is an attempt to encourage Christians in their faith. And this is very difficult for us because when you look at Revelation, the last thing that we think about in it is the idea it's encouraging. It's scary. It's weird. It's freaky. How is it encouraging? Well, in Revelation, the divine drama is unfolded. The idea of Revelation, apocalypsis in Greek, is an unfolding, an unveiling. The Christians in the first century on the ground had a lot of opposition. And on the ground had very little earthly reason to expect success. It's because in the flesh we perceive with our five senses, and those five senses are very limited. They are being marginalized in their communities. They're suffering some employment loss, perhaps, social ostracism, and they're only one or two moments away from persecution that would lead them to death. How is that consistent with the idea that God has triumphed gloriously in Christ? Well, that's what Revelation is really all about. Christians did not have to be persuaded by what is seen in chapter 13. They understood the wrath of the dragon let loose by the beasts. John's trying to remind them that what Satan is doing to them via the beasts is not success. It's not victory. It's defeat. Yes, the beast may be strong. Yes, the beast is making war on the saints. But the beast is going to fall and Jesus is going to have the victory. The situation does not look great on, by, uh, for the Christians on earth, but that's because their perspective is limited. From the divine point of view, looking from the heavenly perspective, the suffering is going to be short, the glory and the victory will be eternal, and that's why Christians are to just hold on to that hope. In chapter 12 and verse 11. And that's to be encouraging for us as well, because if we're looking at what's going on with the faith on the ground, on an earthly level, it, we're we'd be given reason to despair. But we need to remember that from the beginning, the kingdom of God has not advanced powerfully through earthly means on their own. God has strengthened and empowered the advancement of his purposes, sometimes in ways that we would imagine and consider to be counterintuitive. The situation for us may look bad, but we must remember always that there's a divine drama that's playing out beyond our vision and need to put our trust in Jesus for the ultimate victory. Their motto, and our motto, must be what John said in 1 John 4, 4. You are of God, my little children, have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So what is this divine drama that's unfolding? Well, we can see, uh, first of all, there's Babylon the whore. Now, in studies of Revelation, it's been very easy to get so lost in details and speculation about how parts are fulfilled that we can easily miss what's evident, obvious, and glaring right in front of us. God, when giving the Revelation, provides John with a vision of all sorts of cataclysmic events and figures, all reminiscent of past trials, victories, judgments, and vindications surrounding the people of God. And that's why it's not for nothing that John sees the dragon conjuring up a beast from the sea. A beast that just so happens to embody all the characteristics of the empires in beastly form seen by Daniel in Daniel chapter 7. Likewise, not for nothing does John see the whore as Babylon. Likewise, not for nothing does John see the judgments upon this Babylon and the beast in terms of how God has judged Egypt and Babylon and the lament for Tyre in Exodus Jeremiah and Ezekiel. 
And it's strange home encouragement, and it's quite strange, but it is encouraging. God is showing John that Rome is just the next in a series of oppressors of God's people. And the reason it's encouraging is because just as in his day, uh, all of the forces that they had come earlier are gone, so Rome will be at some point as well. You know, it's not that Rome isn't mighty. No, as as the situation shows in chapter 13, Rome is greater than Babylon, Persia, and Greece ever were. But the revelation extends hope that God's going to judge Rome as he judged Babylon, Persia, and Greece. And the idea that Rome is Babylon, that its power concentrated in the emperor is the beast embodiment which Daniel saw. And it will be judged as Egypt and Babylon were judged. In all that, there's something else being evoked. Where did Daniel live? He lived in Babylon in exile. What was Israel doing in Egypt? Why did God judge Egypt? Because of their experience of sojourn in exile. And so, Egypt and Babylon were pagan oppressors and perpetrators of sojourn in exile, the people of God. And we're judged. Rome is just the next one. And there we have again this theme of exile coming up further in the New Testament. And so this is the encouragement that just as the Israelites had experienced this exile, so Christians are now experiencing this exile even in the Roman Empire. And we should not be deceived. God's concern and revelation first and foremost are his saints. And that's why the vision is given, to comfort and encourage them. The saints live in the midst of the beast. They live in the shadow of Babylon. They must maintain faith and perseverance and overcome the beast. That's what we see in Revelation 13.10, in which John had said, If anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Now, overcome is a very strange way of looking at it, isn't it? Uh, let's not mince words. Overcoming the beast is to submit to execution by the Roman power for the sake of the name of Jesus. Now, in the world's ways, and certainly the Romans, that's not victory, that's defeat. It's those who remain alive on the battlefield who are considered the victors. And the idea of a wholesale execution of a religious sect is just a bad idea in the world's viewpoint in terms of its long-term survival. So how is it that this could possibly be victory? Well, that's why Revelation exists, to unfold this divine drama and to contextualize the suffering Christians endure from the pagan oppressive power. Because if we consider death to be defeat, as in the world, that's very short-term thinking that doesn't really make sense of the hope of resurrection. The saints get victory over the beast because they maintain their testimony and their confidence in the blood of the Lamb and did not love their lives even to death in Revelation 12. They obtain the victory in Jesus. Babylon, the beast, and the false prophet will be condemned because they shed and got drunk on the blood of the saints. They consider that their victory, but it's really their indictment it guarantees their condemnation. So we see is that which is debased in the world will be exalted by God, and that which is exalted in the world will be debased by God. Does that sound familiar? It's exactly the theme of Matthew twenty three twelve and Philippians two five through eleven. What God is doing in Jesus. So God, in Revelation, is inviting Christians to radically revise their expectations of what it means to get the victory. It's not about numerical superiority. It's not about seeming progress on the battlefield. But it's about standing firm to endure whatever trials may come, 
to entrust ourselves to him, to wait for and hasten the day when he will gain the victory of the forces against him. And that's something we see throughout the New Testament, Ephesians 6 and 1 Peter 4, 18, 2 Peter 3, 11 through 13, and in Revelation 19. We do well to recognize there's no reforming Babylon and the beast. They are satanically energized and drunk on, on unrighteousness. There's no legislation that's going to solve their ills. God shows their satanically empowered. The authority God has given them to rule has been thoroughly perverted. And so in the end, all that can be done is God's judgment. That's why Christians are to stand firm, to obey Jesus, to cry out for everyone to come out of Babylon, to entrust themselves to Christ who will gain the victory. We need to remember, first and foremost, that the trials that we endure are not part of some inevitable satanic victory. It is the evidence, in fact, of his defeat. So yes, in the first century, John is given a vision of the divine drama. Satan rouses his forces to make war on the saints. His tools, Babylon and the beasts, are fearsome. The whole world is enthralled with them and drunk on their power and on sexual morality with them. That is idolatry. On the ground, the situation looks hopeless for the Christians. And yet they are sealed by God in Christ. Judgment will come against Babylon and the beasts. They will not be spared. The saints have the glory of heaven and participation in the heavenly Jerusalem to sustain their hope. The beasts, Babylon, and the dragon, only the lake of fire awaits. Now, what's extraordinary about all this is that within 500 years it would come to pass. That the pagan heart of the world was struck with a fatal blow. That Christianity, even in a distorted form, was ascendant. The Roman pagan oppressing power had been thoroughly overcome and did not exist anymore. The beast and the false prophets in Babylon had been overthrown. Satan while still active in many ways, was far more constrained than before. And so the world of 595 was unimaginable in the most important ways to the Christians in 95. Now, in 2016, we may still be in the millennium, the long period of time uh, between the defeat of Rome and the return of Jesus. We might be that in that time uh, in Revelation 21 through 8 that, that said that Satan is, is loosed again and marshals his forces before the final judgment scene. Regardless, we know that his time is short and he and his minions will be cast into the lake of fire and the saints will enjoy love and peace and joy and light in the presence of God for all eternity in Revelation chapters 20, 21, and 22. Now the beast in Babylon that we may face is not exactly what John is seeing, but they're like unto them. After all, Rome was just the next in a series of oppressive powers, and oppressive power did not end with Rome. And that is why so many throughout time have seen uh, their own times in the Revelation. But we do well to overcome any form of the beast and the false prophet and the dragon that we may encounter by standing firm in our faith for Christ, to entrust ourselves to our faithful creator while doing good, to not love our lives even to death, for this is the true victory. And in it we will share in the resurrection of life for eternity and to sing the song of Moses and the Lamb before the throne for all eternity. We're so glad that you've joined us today. We hope that you've been encouraged by this. If you'd like to discuss these things more, if you'd like to see the outline and more information about these things, we went through them very quickly, I know. Uh, maybe you'd like to hear some more sermons on this theme and others. We encourage you to uh, check out the Venture to Christ online at VenturechurchofChrist.org. We're also on many prominent forms of social media. And if you'd like to contact me directly, you can contact me through my website, deverbovitae.com. That's www.deverbovitae.com. We again thank you. Have a great day.